Hi, Eric. Hi, Aaron. Okay, we're getting close to the end of the season. Um, excited to see you today. Yes, it's a season <laughs> with a great many episodes as it ends up. Yeah, it turns I mean, out. <laughs> it was Go a strange ahead. year. I'm sure oh. we're not alone in that. It was a strange year. Um, uh, my The place where I work put its mask uh, requirements back into place today. Uh, it's probably a good idea. Yesterday, I was was probably the most dangerous day I've had during the entire pandemic. I found out today that uh, it was the final staff meeting of the year. So there's a lot of food. So people yeah. weren't wearing their masks. And yeah. uh, there was a bridal shower for a friend of mine afterwards, which I stayed for. And so masks were off as people ate cake. And um, although most of us had our masks off and on as opposed to just off, like three teachers are out today. Um, oh, two with positive COVID tests and the other one who is married to someone who has a COVID, positive COVID test. So, yep. so yep. we'll see. That's right. We're heading back towards uh, the red category here in Alameda. Yeah. County. Our school tried to make masks mandatory again, but the district wouldn't allow us. Well, the school year is pretty much over anyway. So it is. Well, um, I have to say uh, for this, for, okay. Anyway, uh, shall we move on? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm interested in this lesson. So I want to give you a bit of context as to why I thought this might be fun to talk about. Um, okay. And fun might not be the right word for today's topic. <laughs> so um, we're okay. So I was teaching. So I teach primary now. Um, I've been released from my calling in the ward mission, and I'm teaching the three to four year olds. And um, that because of various reasons, I, I, I'm co-teaching with the misses, and this was um, she prepared the lesson this week, and when it was time for the followers of Joshua to knock the walls of Jericho down, what she had me do was go and stand in the middle of the room, right, and then she <laughs> led all of the primary children around me, right, and they all blew their trumpets. <laughs> 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 and then I crashed to the earth with the big exploding sound, right? And all the kids went, yay. And one of them said, you're really silly. <laughs> <laughs> and it was great. And then um, afterwards, I was chatting in the car. And I was like, you know what? It's a weird story. <laughs> <laughs> it is a weird story. So we started going back and forth about it. And um, yeah, why did this happen? So let's so let's ask it the the question more interestingly. Um, okay, the conquest of Canaan was an event in the Bible where after the children of Israel left Egypt, they entered into the land of Israel and just killed everybody. <laughs> Yeah, basically. Yeah, they were supposed to kill everyone. Yeah, um, the fact that there were any that, that anyone is left alive is a consequence of their failures, mm -hmm. as written. Now, I was never particularly happy with this subject growing up, and just rethinking about it, I became even less happy about it. <laughs> and darned if you didn't send me a link to an article on by common consent, which we're going to cover, that completely um, threw me for a loop. And 
put me again in this position that I've been in so many times on this show of realizing there's an entire aspect of my religion that I actually don't know anything about. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're certainly welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, we're, we've never really been a come follow me style podcasts. There are lots of those on the Internet. No but shortage. This one, this one just happened. This topic happened to come out of it. So let's take advantage. All right. Special episode genocide. <laughs> That's right. Um, so book of Joshua. Joshua um piles up the Jordan River, right? Which was uh, which is awesome. The armies cross the river, they knock down the walls of Jericho, capture the city, have a lot more battles, and eventually at the end, the battles are so intense and taking so long. That Joshua stops the sun and the moon in their tracks, and the battles keep going, and they win the battles, and it's just full of euphemisms. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of violence in the Old Testament, but in some ways, the Joshua era of violence might be the worst because it is this utterly destroy sort of violence. It's not person on person or nation on nation. I mean, I guess it is technically nation on nation, but um, it's not, there, there's not a sense that um, there's going to be pushing and pulling and back and forth. It's one way forward and everything will be destroyed in their path. Um, that's crazy. <laughs> Looking yes. back at it. How did I ever read these scriptures and try to jump through hoops to try and rationalize this the level of violence that's described here um yeah it's a problem um but i mean that's part of what we do right if there's something you accept you sort of accept all of it um without necessarily thinking it through we can see this in a lot of aspects of life um, if you're a good patriotic American, you uh, might overlook some things that get in the way of, of the shinier version of that. Same thing is true of, uh, I don't know, science, for instance, right? Uh, you probably recall about 10 years ago when there's a big, um, there's quite a few major journals had to retract things because there had been a lot of fraud Um there's there's always going to be things that are not quite right around the edges and we shouldn't accept them but sometimes it takes us a while to see those things and recognize them as problematic and figure out what we want to do with them okay so i want to point out what's problematic here about the book of joshua and i don't really know how to approach the subject well i mean i know the you kind mean, what where i want to go but i don't know how to get there you mean besides uh god the father um arguing for wholesale destruction of his children you mean besides that well, maybe we should cover that first <laughs> yes what was what is purported to have happened well i mean you you covered it right they show up god has promised them this land and so uh god goes on before them and they go from city to city destroying pretty much everything there are a few notable exceptions, but those are generally special individuals or families and, and not 
Uh, yeah, it's not nations. Nations are not spared. Um, I wonder what the casualty counts would be if we added it all, all up. Oh, people have done that online. Let's. Uh... I mean, it's real grim. Okay, right. Yes. There's um a Wikipedia article called "The Conquest of Canaan." Okay. Right? Does it have those numbers? I'm doesn't, trying to it, find them, and I'm not succeeding. It doesn't have numbers, but it talks about all the different cities that were destroyed, right? Yeah. Um, for example, uh, in Jericho, and the story is just crazy. The story is supposed to be like inspirational, right? Where you have a woman named um, Rahab, right? And spies go into Jericho first to kind of get the uh, the lay of the land, right? Yes. And Rahab hides them and uh, tells the people that are searching for the spies that she doesn't know where they are, right? And she professes her faith in God. And um, just reading from the from the Wikipedia article here, acknowledges her belief that Canaan was divinely reserved for the Israelites from the beginning, right? And so God, um, so in so then so then then she they tell her how to avoid being killed <laughs> over the next few days, and they say, okay, put this hair on your window or whatever. And we'll make sure that your house isn't destroyed. And um, that's what happens. They go and they wipe out Jericho and they spare Rahab. And um, this is supposed to be inspiring. But I read the story because um, I was reading it before I taught this primary lesson. Right. And I thought and I couldn't help but see the, um, that they were that i don't know it looked one-sided it looked like a war of the aggressor oh it certainly is there's no way to yeah there's i don't see any way to spin it otherwise it's not like it's not like they had this land exactly they've been gone a long time they've been in egypt according to the bible longer than america has existed so the idea that they're going back to claim anything when there are millions more of them now than there were before is is pretty ludicrous on the face all these people were there when they left and now there's a lot more of them and they want the whole thing. Okay. Well, I feel like we're bearing the lead a little bit. The lead is okay. that um, it's very likely that none of this ever happened. Yeah. Extremely likely. Um, that is correct. Which this is the part that um, for some reason, I, <laughs> for some reason I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to be talking about this article from by common consent written by Michael Austin um, that really Re made me rethink everything too. Like I knew that there wasn't any archaeological evidence um, of an entire slave race being kept in Egypt for a very long time. Like I knew that, but somehow that didn't really seem to matter. Um, you know, it was a long time ago, whatever. But the article made me realize that not only is there no evidence of that, and there's no evidence of the Exodus, and there's no evidence of city after city being destroyed. Um, there's quite a lot of evidence to the contrary. And Aaron, I I dare I dare guess that there may be no region of the world that has been more thoroughly looked at archaeologically than the Holy Land. I mean, seriously. Yeah, it's one thing to say that um, to talk about the lack of archaeological record for the Book of Mormon because we don't know where to look. We don't know how many people we're looking for. Like we don't know anything hardly about that. Yeah. Uh, but when it comes to the Holy Land, like we know exactly where to look. We know exactly what we're looking for. And we have been looking for decades, maybe centuries, depending on how you count 
the beginning of archaeology as a legitimate science. Right. If there was evidence, it would have been found by now. So this article, again, by Michael Austin, and, and thank you, Michael, if you're listening for this article, uh, is titled, what, what do we mean when we say that the tr- scriptures are true? You sent it to me, and it's excellent. And um, that's the general thesis statement of it, right? When he realized that there's no evidence for the book of Joshua, and we're going to go into what that means here in a minute, that it he was relieved. <laughs> um, I could not, so I cannot express the relief I felt when I read these arguments. By that time, I had concluded that the Bible could not be true if the stories of conquest and genocide were historically accurate. I could not accept that the God of Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, a God who favors one race of people over the other and does not merely tolerate, but affirmatively commands genocidal slaughter. I simply could not accept such a being as my loving and merciful father, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, but if it didn't actually happen, and this is instead some kind of propaganda, which we'll we'll talk about in metaphor, if you prefer, um, then, um, thank goodness. (laughs) <laughs> what this yes. experiment i'll just read this next bit what this experience taught me is that there are several definitions of true that we bring to the scriptures one version of true means historically accurate and another means something like morally valuable i've heard people dismiss this stuff sort of in a jokey way um by saying you know old testament god was you know very angry and irritable um, and then Jesus gets experience and develops charity or something. Like there's a lot of different versions on this of like comparing old Testament God and new Testament God, some explicitly Mormon where Jesus is the same person, but, um, those sort of jokey dismissals are problematic on their own, right? Like if God's the same yesterday, today, forever, um, there's the explanation of like God slowly expanding the people that he is focused on. And like, it starts with you know, one family and it moves to a nation and moves to the world. But all these things are missing the greater point of, of Christianity, which is that we are all worthy of redemption and nobody is really sent to earth just to get killed. Um, our lives have more meaning than that. That's good. I mean, let's, let's go ahead and quote, um, article of faith one eight, right? We believe the, do you want to sing it? I could sing. Oh, I don't. I I'm too old. I thought we were the same age. How do you know that song? <laughs> we believe the Bible to be the word of God, as far as it is translated correctly, right? We also yeah, so believe once again we will need to give Mormon to be the word of God. To be the word of God. Um, once again, translation is going to do a lot of work for us, as it has many times on the show. Yeah. Uh, what does it mean to be translated? Because um, it doesn't just mean from the ancient Hebrew. I don't think. Or that doesn't solve the problem. But here, I want to I want to interrupt you. Um, I agree 100% with um, translation, right, being a problem and a way to kind of wash away, wash away the problems of the of the Bible, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to quote my own dad, who once told me, um, when it says we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, that's what it we believe the Bible. Yes. Right? 
And when we think, when what that means is that we believe that the things happened that are in there. Okay. Now, well, more or less. Let me connect the. Let me let me let me demonstrate evidence that what I just said is 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 true. Okay. I don't believe that what I just said is true. Okay. I believe that some okay. things are really happened in the Bible as they're described. Right. Okay. But let me just show you this evidence. I'm going to open up Come Follow Me. Now, for those that don't know, Come Follow Me is our Sunday school manual, shall we say. It's our Sunday school manual. Right. Thank you. So I have this year's theme, Old Testament. That's right. This year's theme is Old Testament. That's why this is coming up today. Now, as I read this Come Follow Me section, it's going to sound, I'm going to sound like way more critical than I probably am. Okay. As you will see later in the episode, I'm going to back off on that criticalness. Um, and that will make sense when we get to it. So our Sunday school manual, um, if you read the section here on Joshua, so this is, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. It ain't presented as a matter of history that is under debate, right? Instead, it's no, presented- No, that's too complicated. It's Instead, it's presented- um, like this, it had taken several generations, but the Lord's promise was about to be fulfilled. The children of Israel was on, were on the verge of inheriting the promised land, but in their way stood the Jordan River, the walls of Jericho, and a wicked but mighty people who had rejected the Lord. The Lord, right? I'm just quoting okay. from 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 the "Come Follow Me" lesson. Yeah, and then the lesson is full of euphemisms like conquer conquest take the city right and so forth and it kind of and i'm being overly critical of this article and i'm going to back away from my criticism in a second but it really feels um like uh first of all it feels like an acceptance of these teachings as some things that really happened and second it kind of dances around the violent slaughter and death Yes, it is. Uh, it's not great when your heroes are the perpetrators of violent slaughter and death. It really, it really muddies the water of what it means to be a hero. Um, I've talked for a while. Your turn. Okay. Well, at first, uh, like I had a, a sort of autoimmune reaction to Michael when he said, "I can remember the exact moment that I decided the Bible was true, and it was when I learned it is not historically accurate." Um, that felt, that felt, uh, wrong to me. And I do think it presents a different problem, right? It's one problem to think that God, um, instructs men, women, and children, entire families and cities to be destroyed. It's another problem to say that, uh, whatever the Bible is, it's not exactly precisely what it claims to be. Um, but I, I think it's reasonable to believe the Bible is not exactly what it claims to be. And so we need to figure out what it is. Like, I really don't think anybody lived to be hundreds of years old in like they did in Genesis. Um, there's no evidence of this mass slaughter, which seems like good news and maybe something we should welcome. But then the question that becomes like, what is the Bible? Um, and there's plenty of, you know, historical characters that we can, we can prove are there archeologically. It's not like the Bible is a bunch of um, made up stories or anything, but the role of the Bible. And it comes down to like, what is the purpose of scripture? What is scripture for? Um, and it's not 
it's no more a history book per se than it is a recipe book for creating a planet. We need to find meaning and purpose and direction. And it can be a little more complicated than just um, accepting the stories and and distilling something really complicated and unpleasant into a simple lesson of do what God says. Especially because um, I'm I'm kind of on the side of I'm kind of on the side of Stephen Peck, who in a recent essay, which I was planning on quoting anyway, though not not this line, uh, he writes that he has a theological conviction that God has no plan for our lives. That's his opinion. This is a, a Latter-day Saint writer and scientist. He His theological conviction is that A, God has no plan for our lives, but also B, he only desires that we live meaningfully. So we live in a universe in which music is possible, but we are to fashion our instruments, learn to play them, develop the score and themes and improvise freely, etc. Our lives are a work of art we offer back to God. Um, this essay, this Stephen Peck essay that I'm quoting from is called on writing. Uh, oh, I don't know how to say it. I've been saying Heike's void in my, in my mind, but I actually, I don't know how, how's your German Aaron. Um, not good enough for that. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just going to keep calling her Heike. That's probably Heike or possibly Heike or Heike. I don't know. I'm just going to say Heike. Cause that's what I said in my head. And I didn't realize until it came time to say it out loud that I probably <laughs> totally wrong. Anyway, this is, this is Stephen Peck's new novel. We've talked about Stephen Peck before. He's an evolutionary biologist. Um, he also writes novels. Uh, Heike's Void is his newest one. It's actually published by BCC Press, which um, Michael Austin founded. So connections here. But here's the, here's the bit I was planning on quoting to you. So he wrote this essay about writing the book and like what his goals as an artist are. And he says this in the, in the essay. Um, to fulfill President Kimball's vision about Mormon literature, President Kimball believed that we would write great books. We have to move out of the realm of thinking about writing great literature and to think about readers of great literature. We need a people ready to read questions, to be disturbed, to be rattled and twisted out of their hammocks and ready to receive unresolved questions, perhaps unresolvable questions rather than answers, questions that lead to more questions. This is how knowledge progresses. It is a series of questions, not answers. I think of the publication of Moby Dick into the lighthouse, unquestioned books of genius, but received the public meh. Why? They were ignored because readers were not prepared to answer the questions that these books splashed into reality. The great literature of Mormonism is not just waiting for great writers, it's waiting for a people ready for great literature. We need both. If we are not ready for questions and writing that serves only answers, we will not be a people who are ready for great literature. And I would propose that this principle for literature is not unrelated to the question about scripture that we're discussing. In order to learn more of what lessons scripture has for us, we need to accept that scripture is posing more questions than it is posing answers. In, in Heike's Void, one of the uh, characters is Nephi. He is an angel at this point. And uh, he's very bitter about being an angel when some of his, um, some of the people he knew, for instance, his brother Laman have now progressed. They've been promoted to God and he feels bitter that he has not been. And he feels that he's being unjustly punished. And that if he was wrong about killing Laban, it, you know, he was doing what the spirit told him. And, and he, he's blaming a lot of people for his status as an angel. Um, he's not, he's not like the most important character in the book. He shows up at time to time and, and he's a really it's a really interesting take on Nephi and one I really appreciate because I think about Nephi a lot and try to solve the problem of Nephi because uh, the Book of Mormon presents 
a really complicated character who really wants us to accept his story in the same way that we accept it's okay to cross the Jordan River and knock down Jericho. Nephi's just right, and that's what he wants us to believe, but um, he's complicated, and uh, we should be asking questions about him rather than just accepting the answers Nephi would provide us. This is fantastic. This, I, this narrative of asking questions and being ready to ask questions is really exactly what happened in the 20-minute car ride back to my home from um, from church on Sunday, where I had just taught the Joshua to a bunch of children <laughs> as if it had actually happened, and um, and to the parents of those children, apologies. <laughs> but listen, I wanted to go over it, and I wanted to say this in more detail. I've used this framing on the show in the past, but I wanted to just restate it. Here's what I worked out in my head as we were traveling home. Okay, either. Either we're either we're right. This is like either we're right or we're wrong or we don't know anything. Okay, those are kind <laughs> of the three the three ways to 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 grapple with stuff like this. So either we're right, and it is not moral for God to order the genocide of an entire people on a on a continent, right? And would never have done yeah. so. Or we're wrong. Okay. And it was moral, and that literally happened, or we don't understand anything about what actually happened because history is weird, right? Um, I can't I can't find myself in a universe where I believe the second point is true. And I think that this is really important because I think it's very easy to use the book of Joshua, right? Once you accept that one point at one point in history, God wanted a certain people dead, right? That opens the door to violence in the in the here and now, right? If you oh, believe sure. if you believe that that could have happened in the past, then you also believe that there's no reason why it wouldn't happen again, right? There was a lot of promised land rhetoric when people were founding their colonies on the eastern seaboard. Yeah, yeah, and I feel like this goes to like you know to racism and you know violence you know white supremacism i just feel like this kind of if you go back and you cite this from the bible as justification right and use that rhetoric that that it's a problem right so yes. we've got we have to go in there and examine it critically uh, it goes back to what we talked about last week about critical reading um let's look at the evidence so first of all, I, I I finished that that thought and that conversation in a state of confusion because I couldn't believe that this really happened. And then I said to you, "What if we talk about that?" And then you sent me this article, and it opened my eyes, as it were. Right, the the scales mm -hmm. fell from my eyes. Right, and <laughs> I you, became Austin. <laughs> I became open to the idea <laughs> that the Book of Joshua did, didn't happen. And now I'm going to quote from from Wikipedia. Are you ready? I'm ready. I love Wikipedia. Okay, here's what it says. The Battle of Jericho is an incident from the book of Joshua, being the first battle fought by the Israelites in the course of the conquest of Canaan. According to Joshua 6, the walls of Jericho fell after the Israelites marched around the city, marched around the city walls once a day for six days and seven times on the seventh day and then blew their trumpets. Excavations at Tel Es Sultan 
the biblical Jericho, have failed to substantiate the story, which has its origins in the nationalist propaganda of much later kings of Judah and their claims to the territory of the kingdom of Israel. The lack of archaeological evidence and the composition, history, and theological purposes of the book of Joshua have led archaeologists like William G. Denver to characterize the story of the fall of Jericho as invented out of whole cloth. So what were these excavations? They were um, excavations in, um, in the 1930s. They discovered the remains of collapsed walls, but those collapsed walls were dated to earlier than the book of Joshua would have purported. Um, and that was verified later, later by um, radiocarbon tests. And so, yeah, according to the archaeology, the walls never didn't fall at the time when they were supposed to have, at least. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm just going to read this one extra quote. I heard your intake of breath. Give me just a second. No problem. Uh, <laughs> scholars agree almost unanimously that the book of Joshua holds little historical value. Right? And that sentence really shook me, okay? Because it's exactly the same sentence that our LDS scriptures has have applied to the book to the Song of Solomon. Pretty close. Which is funny because I was working on some essays about that footnote. Not my essays. I'm working on a book, but um, that'll be for another day. Shall we, uh, um, shall, we, shall we just quote that footnote really quick? Sure. Do you have it open? Yeah. It's like, it says it's uninspired, I believe. Not that it's not real. Which is funny because I learned this week that the Song of Solomon is quoted by Jesus three or four times in the Doctrine and Covenants. So for something that's not inspired... I don't know what you do with that. <laughs> <laughs> so here's here it is. The JST manuscript, the Joseph, that's the Joseph Smith translation, states that the songs of Solomon are not inspired writings, right? So yes, that, which is different than saying they're not historical. Yeah, it's true. It is true. Uh, perhaps I was a bit exaggeratory. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> there, it feels like there's precedent for characterizing a well, book of the sure. Bible as not um, historical. I am, I am on record on this program saying that Jonah is a work of fiction and Job mm -hmm. is a work of fiction. Those are not really controversial takes outside biblical literalists. Yeah. Um, why not throw Joshua in there too? Why can't Joshua also be some kind of wisdom literature rather than a historical document? All right. I'm going to play a bit of devil's advocate. Okay. Because the reason why not to do that is because where, where, where do you, where's the line, right? Oh, the slippery slope argument. That's the best you can do. Oh, it's not. It's not the <laughs> best I can do. <laughs> but um, well, but... I know. No, it's a legitimate. It's a legitimate concern. Uh, and I think it's one of the reasons that we often hear folks react really negatively to conversations of the sort we're having now, because if faith requires accepting all aspects of it equally and fully at all times, then a single brick out of the, out of the building causes the whole thing to collapse. Um, and I don't think that's a healthy way to think about faith. Faith should be dynamic enough that it can adjust to new information and uh, find that an opportunity for growth rather than an opportunity for destruction. 
by the way, the negative reactions that you described are in the comments of this article. Oh, yes, I imagine they are. Oh, have... holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to actually read any of them because then people would like maybe the person that wrote the comment would like take offense because they'd think I'd misinterpreting <laughs> their words. But it's all about stuff like. um, Actually, but but uh, but actually. God did order this massacre. And, you know, the people that were killed went went on to better things. <laughs> well, it's what Nephi said, right? It's better that one man should perish than an entire nation should dwindle in unbelief. So maybe it's better that one city should perish too. Right. And this um, is exactly the rationale that I worry about. Because I think I feel to me it feels like the same kind of hoop that people jumped through you know, to be, uh, to justify, you know, blacks not holding the priesthood, right? Yes, it's, 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 it's the same, same kind of gymnastics. If this scripture has to be true, right, then how do we justify it? Where's the moral logic that we have to contort ourselves into to make this be justified? And then you start coming up with crazy stuff. Like, actually, it was a good thing. <laughs> right. And we just can't understand it. God said so, but our understanding is insufficient. And I'm willing to accept that God can tell me to do things and my understanding will be insufficient. But um, I don't. For instance, I've, I've come around to the idea that the the choice Abraham was presented to sacrifice his son, Isaac, I think he chose wrong. I think it was sort of an Eve kind of moment and he did not pull an Eve. He did what seemed like the the more obedient thing as opposed to the correct thing. I think Abraham was given a choice very similar to Eve's and chose wrongly. Hmm, that's so so that's like that's and now does the scripture say that? No, like the scriptures tend to reward Abraham for this choice, but um I I think that we have to interrogate scripture a little bit more firmly. I do want to know more about this um propagandist interpretation, right? And unfortunately, the only the amount the time that I had to go and do the research on this ran out. Um, but there are um, references in Wikipedia that this, that are readable, dear listener, if you want to if you want to know more. It's a problematic kind of propaganda because, I mean, I haven't read it. I'm I'm making a couple assumptions here, which I think are safe assumptions. I'm not going very deep in my assuming, but a kind of propaganda that says might makes right is a different kind of propaganda than flies today. If the nation wants to say we were strong and we could kill everyone, therefore we deserve this stuff um, worked in the past, that may not be what flies in society today. That sort of propaganda may really backfire and seem as evidence that you don't own this stuff. We were actually dealing with this kind of question in the US right now, right? Um, we're pretty good at avoiding the question, but America exists in the form it does. Um, in uh, be, and that's possible because of introduced diseases and deliberate genocide, uh, and those those two historical facts created the nation as we currently have it. But the spread of disease and military might don't seem very morally strong, and so we tend to avoid thinking about this too deeply. Yeah, I think it's a good point. Um, we've um, I've mentioned CPG Grape on. And um, the video author in the past, if you want to 
watch a great video on this. He has a video called America Pox. We've probably quoted it here before. It, it goes into this like 90% or something of the people were dead by the time. And it was all because of, of essentially plague. I, I don't want to say the actual number, but it was a big number. It's a big number. I mean, entire civilizations in the center of the country were wiped out. Yeah. Um, here, There is a bit more here on that uh, clarifies this. Um, according to some scholars, the story of the conquest represents the nationalist propaganda of the 8th century BCE kings of Judah and their claims to the territory of the kingdom of Israel. Incorporated into an early form of Joshua written late in the reign of King Josiah, which was 640 to 609 BCE. The book was probably revised and completed after the fall of Jerusalem um, and possibly after the return to the return from Babylonian exile. One of the comments on Michael Austin's article, uh, someone's, I forget who it is, I'm not going to look it up, but someone's talking about how even treating the Book of Mormon, uh, which according to the way we understand it, comes through us in a lot more clean way than the Bible gets to us. Even that is a little troubling because it's written by a Mormon who is working from old documents and legends. And, uh, you know, I mean, we can't do, oh, 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 I can't remember, can't remember her name, but there is a scholar of Renaissance, the Renaissance, who she says that, um, I'll find, there. it was an article in Wired where I read this, I'll find it and we'll put it in the show notes, but, uh, She's also a science fiction writer, apparently a really great one. But she says that uh, if you consider the stuff that happened 500 years ago, which is her specialty, we know about 1% of what happened then. And two thirds of what we know is wrong. And that's hmm. just 500 years ago. And that's using our modern historical and scientific capabilities. For people who are writing the Bible or the Book of Mormon, they have access to not all the tools we do. And they're writing about distances sometimes even greater than 500 years and to put together something that is absolutely accurate in a historical sense, it's, it's just not a fair thing to expect of them. So what do we get from the book of Joshua? What can we take away from it as we study it this year? Well, I think that's a really important question, and I don't have a great answer for you. There are plenty of people who have been working on this problem. You can buy a commentary. Um, by a rabbi or by a Catholic or even by a Latter-day Saint, and you can get some good answers to that question. But I think the main thing is what Stephen Peck was saying. Like the main thing is questions. We should be taking questions from it, not answers. Answers are not the most valuable thing we can get. Come Follow Me is our yearly lesson manual. And when I was talking earlier about how this section on Joshua was portrayed as reality, I was being just a little bit disingenuous, just a little bit, okay? Everything I read was true, but what I was neglecting to do was to quote a section in the Come Follow Me manual from just a bit earlier called Thoughts to Keep in Mind. This little section is about the historical books in the Old Testament, right? I'm just going to quote from it. Again, this is from the Come, Follow Me manual. The books of Joshua through, through um, boy, how do you say it? Esther? Esther. Oh, I just panicked for a second. Okay. The, <laughs> books of, <laughs> the books of Joshua through Esther are traditionally known as the historical books of the Old Testament. 
This doesn't mean that the other books in the Old Testament don't have historical value. Rather, the historical books are called that because the main objective of the writers was to show God's hand in the history of the people of Israel. The purpose was not to outline the law of Moses as Leviticus or Deuteronomy do. It was not to express praise or lament in the poetic form as the Psalms and Lamentations do. And it was not to record the words of prophets as the books of Isaiah and Ezekiel do. Instead, the historical books tell a story. All right, then there's a section called A Matter of Perspective where it reminds us that the authors had a certain point of view. And there's a section called the context of the rest of the Old Testament, right? And um, this is the part that I really liked, when something doesn't fit. Just scroll down a little bit. When reading the Old Testament, as with any history, you're likely to read about people doing or saying things that to modern eyes seem strange or troubling. We should expect this. The Old Testament writers saw the world in a perspective that was in some ways quite different from ours. Violence, ethnic relations, and the roles of women are just some of the issues the ancient writers seem to have seen, might have seen differently than we do today. So what do we do when we come across passages that seem tr troubling? Consider each passage in a broader context. How does it fit in the plan of salvation? And then keep skipping down a bit, it says, the passage may not seem to fit well with any of these options. It may be like a puzzle piece that doesn't look like it has a place, Trying to force it isn't the best approach, but neither is giving up. Learn more, look for more of the puzzle and see how they fit together. And when I That's read excellent. this, this is fantastic. And when I read it, it's everything that I was hoping to see, except an outright <laughs> statement that this probably didn't happen, <laughs> but that's okay. I it think was probably okay. written a few hundred years later. Yeah. I think I think it's um, okay that that statement isn't in here because... Um, we live in an age of Wikipedia where they can go ahead and say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I don't know. Maybe it would be nice if that was in here. But anyway, there's a section called Finding the Gems, right? Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're hidden in the rocky ground of troubling experiences and poor choices <laughs> made by imperfect, imperfect people. So it's great. We've come, kind of come full circle here. We started with a primary lesson. That, um, <laughs> you know, it was fun for the kids, may not have been true, um, thought, came to a section in the Come Follow Me that looked like it was doing a problematic history, looked at the history, and then came back to this section here where, where it, they were trying to teach us all along to go and read more broadly to find out what's going on. Critical reading. Yeah. I mean, honestly, that passage that you read, the doesn't fit section, that would be a great lesson in itself back in January. Yeah. Right. Right at the beginning of teaching the Old Testament. Anyway, that's the whole, that's the whole meandering path I wanted to take. Um, well, I'm glad we made it somewhere. I don't anticipate being a come follow me podcast. <laughs> <laughs> But it was fun to at least do one of them. Yeah. Yeah. When it's relevant, we're not we're not above come follow me. <laughs> not by any means. That's, that's not it. <laughs> um, okay, so we have one more episode left in the season. Um, thanks for listening. We haven't chosen a topic yet. So if you want to hop on Discord and give us suggestions, it's not too late for that's us right. to uh, be swayed. <laughs> you can follow me at Aaron Brewster on Twitter. And I'm at the amazing. And you can follow the show at Face and Hat 
on Twitter. Um, there's a Discord server. The link's in the show notes. Please join us. Um, I'd like to thank, uh, yeah, thank uh, Daniel Foster-Smith for our music. And uh, we're proud members of the Dialogue Podcasting Network, which is doing great stuff this yes, we are. weekend. They're doing, there's a big um, um, conference that I'm seeing people talk about on Twitter. All right, that's it. Oh, it's the MHA. MHA. Oh, yes. Actually, I know you already said that's it. But the MHA, the no. Mormon Humanities, or whatever they're called, really good conference this year. And if you're into literature like me, it is the best literature conference they have ever had. There are options, so many options. Um, check it out. I'll put a, I'll put a link if you're interested in the lit because uh, somehow I've managed to get to you. I'll put a link <laughs> to an article by the AML just listing all the literature specific things in the show notes. Excellent. All right. Bye, Eric. Bye.